life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Reptiles in New Zealand. Uh, don't see many, do you? Oh boy, do you think we're bird land? We do have this reputation, oh, the land of birds, and birds are birds, birdsy birds. There are more endemic lizards, reptiles found here than there are birds. And they are astounding in their array of colours and patterns and types, and just like most things New Zealand biology, they are weird as all weirdness. A new field guide's come out, and if you're interested in these animals, go get it. Um, Dylan Van Winkle, what a lovely name. He's a co-author of this thing, and it's just a great excuse to get him in to talk about our reptiles. And you can have a look at a peculiar one, a New Zealander that lives up in the mountains in Kaikoura. How it gets on, I have no idea. But um, I filmed one in captivity. And just go have a look at its Godzilla-like scales. It's a fantastic thing. Moving pictures on the Facebook page, Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. It's there. And a lot of other information about the shows on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Go there, have a look around, have fun. We've got all the archives as well for uh, Jesus Make It Stop, the last days of World War One with Glenn Harper and the final edition of that on Armistice Day will be tomorrow at the different time of 10.30. That way we can fit stuff in. It's just the way it is. 10.30 tomorrow night. Don't miss it. And it'll be on... It's available on a podcast right now if you want to have a listen to it as well. That's uh, just pretty much the front page of News Hub, if you like. So good on you, Glenn, for doing all those things. Next up, the world of human statistics with Jonathan Dodd. What the rich people really do and think. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The world of human statistics. Jonathan Dodd, he's a research director at Ipsos New Zealand. They ask lots of people what they think about stuff and tell us the results. That's basically it, I think, in plain English. G'day, Jonathan. Nice to have you yes. back. Thanks, Graham. You've been uh, in the States working for the Trump campaign or something, have you? <laughs> in the interim, now the midterms are over, you can relax. Oh, good dear idea. <laughs> Where do I go with that? I actually have a Trump-supporting friend, and we, we are proof that you can have civil, interesting, intellectual debates about these issues without drawing knives. Good well, one. I think we're the exception. Yeah, man, it's it seems it feels so perilous to be in the middle. Um, okay, used to be a comfy spot. Right, let's go. Well, well, well actually, there's been some really good analysis lately that shows by the nature of the um, how the um, both parties are campaigning these days is they're just ignoring the middle ground because yeah. you've got to look at the best bang for buck. And that swing voter, the, the likelihood of winning them over mm. is so much lower, so why waste your resources going for the central ground when you really just want to emphasize the extreme ends and then concentrate on getting them to actually turn up and vote? But so, the people on extreme ends are never going to change their vote. It's the people in the middle that might. Exactly. So it stops being about um, winning new people, but ensuring people actually get out and vote and actually yeah. amping it up so they feel compelled to vote. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, it's a funny old thing in the United States. They don't turn up for a lot of democratic things. It's weird. Such low turnouts. Well, you know, the phrase don't vote, it only encourages them. Yeah, true. You know, and, I... and there's some of the analysis to show that one of the reasons, you know, when you look into the mechanics of the US system, it is really broken and we just see the results of how yeah. poorly designed it is. And when you compare it to MMP, you realise the relative stability that comes through compromise and, you know, productive discussion. Yep, that's true. I was not a fan of MMP, but it's not the end of the world, uh, and it does seem to work. All right, here we go. Uh, insights into global business influences. Yeah. Uh, we're looking well, at the top end. Yeah, and actually thinking about this, I reckon um, Trump would be Trump would be eligible for this survey because mm-hmm. this is a, a, a big piece of research we do every year into people who basically get determined to be what we call global business influencers, and you look at how much they earn, the seniority in the job, the nature of their businesses, the country they're in, and that. And you work out after a while that um, there's these people who are the real movers and shakers. Um, and we found about 12,000 such people, 23 countries to survey. And some of the stuff, of course, is what you'd expect. You know, there's a majority influence of them being male. Mm-hmm. Um, average personal income, 317,000 US. So, yeah, 12,000 people who are earning around 600K a year. Not bad for some. But what was interesting, that's when you get into the fun, interesting things when you look at these people, is that um, 60% of them only had a bachelor's degree. And we say only these days because we all tend to think you've got to get a master's or an MBA and stuff. But a big chunk of them are really just in that, um, just, you know, a, a bachelor's degree and on average have an income of, you know, 600 grand or so. Mm. Um, that's it. I, that, I'm not sure if I find that. I, maybe there's a reason why. I just think um, people, uh, they get more and more specialised these days. It's very hard to be, um, ha- have Catholic interests or, or be a Renaissance oh, person. Yeah, you yeah. have to specialise in order to really make an impact in your specialised field. But those that do manage to have a rounded life and can... Um, appreciate all sorts of areas of life um, can do very well. Yep, and, and of course there's different ways of, of defining how you do very well, and these people have a rather interesting way of defining how the, you know, what right. success is. But it's also important to note that of course about half these people are aged 45 and over, um, and so the older you are, the you know the less you needed to get into the workforce. You know, you go back 30 years and the bachelor's really stood out, and these days it's just just the beginning. It doesn't. Yeah. It's not as valuable as it used to be. So today's twenty-five-year-olds are more likely to just go straight for, um, you know, a master's degree, yeah. and um, and that'll flow through when you go twenty years in the future and see how you know what they've got. So the part of that'll be you know time in the workforce. Um, but yeah, some of the I thought it was fun is how so many of these um these stereotypes go, you know come through. You know, you're asking people, you know, what do you currently own? And it's things like a um, a car worth more than 150 grand US. Right. And you'll have, you know, about 6% of them have that, particularly if they're a little bit older mm. and they've got an MBA. Um, are they into, you know, a fine wine and champagne, you know, wine collection worth more than two and a half grand? You know, 20% have got that. Mm. Um and I thought this was interesting. Like handbags and accessories worth more than two and a half thousand. Because when I've done research in China with high income people, it's all in the handbag. Right. Yeah. Around 30% have a watch worth more than $5,000. Wow. 
<laughs> it fights into the other world. Eh? How, how much was your watch? Five grand? <laughs> no. No. It's a few hundred, actually, and I felt yeah. it, it, it really did tax me, but I needed something yeah. that wasn't going to smash like the last one. Yeah. There you go. Well, well, I'll admit, I've got a Rolex, and it cost me $2 in an alley in Beijing. All right. Okay. <laughs> Mine's an um, Olympic, and it's still going around. That's good. Well, mine isn't, but I just thought it was fun to buy a Rolex for two dollars. I sort of actually oh, right, it for the yeah. experience rather than what it actually was. Rolex. But, but, <laughs> but this is yeah, this research gets interesting because you know you, you think about okay, these are the real movers and shapers. These are the really wealthy people, and most of them fight business class, and you know we got all that information. But you ask for their personal interests, and if I say okay, thirty percent of them are really into golf, and you go, well, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, because golf is up there. 38% into football or soccer. And that's because I mean, everyone's into football and soccer yeah, in the world. Yeah. yeah. And you've got a European skewed sample. But then you've got, um, I thought was interesting, 32% into basketball. Ah. Yeah. Now, you've got, you know, I thought this is quite interesting because it's very Americanized and I guess basketball's there, but it's not like they're necessarily playing it or watching it. Um, 13% into motorsports. 30% of the museums and art galleries. So I don't think Trump would be into museums and art galleries, but it shows that 30% of these movers and shakers are. Have you been um, to uh, an exhibition, art exhibition opening recently, Jonathan? Oh. It's, there is a type of people that turn up. Bless them. Oh, I they're, know. They're, they're lovely, but it's it's far out. It's um, uh, disposable wealth walking around. Well, what got me, you saw that, that case of the person who owned the Banksy and then decided to shred his own Banksy to try and make it more valuable. Oh, yeah, yeah. It just shows that you might have the money to spend on fine art, but it doesn't mean you know anything about how art appreciates. <laughs> Take a laugh at that one. Uh, 59% are into technology, and I thought that was interesting. So, you know, you can come up with, oh, they're all playing golf and into museums and art galleries and wine tasting. Mm. And one of the biggest areas they're into was high-tech stuff. So I thought, um, you know, we can't... That, that was of interest in zone. And I mean, um, they weren't all actually in the IT industry. Most of them were actually in manufacturing. Ah, I've got something I just want you to explain. I'd, you haven't addressed the net worth and investments thing. I've, I've got a, a map here in front of me, listeners, yeah. with the various um, how many are millionaires. Uh, so are these the, are the big movers and shakers? How What percentage yeah. of these movers and shakers are in fact millionaires? Exactly, because obviously you could be a mover and a shaker and an influencer without necessarily having money. It's about your wow. role and the. You can be, you know, if you're a senior C-suite person in a company that turns over, you know, ten billion a year, then chances are you're going to be pretty influential. Right. But yeah, forty percent of those like this in China are millionaires. Right. Forty percent in Australia, only twenty nine percent. Yeah. New Zealand, of course, it's like you can count them on one hand. But really low in Europe, well, 19%. Yeah, it's tough, aiming you know, like that. But I guess it also reflects that if you're in Europe, you can have a lot of influence because that's where a lot of the big international companies are based. Right. So you can be very... And there are countries like, um, you know, if you're the head of Lego or um, or Nokia or, or, you know, some of those bigger companies, yeah. particularly in the Slavic countries, um, you they, Sorry, the Scandinavian countries. You know, you got pretty big tax and stuff, and uh, might not, you know, might not really be earning that as much as you'd expect. Mm. And I mean, it's the US and stuff where you get stock options as part of your packages, so it probably reflects as much as the how they're paid and taxed as much as their role. Okay, the marketing psychology of the super rich. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is an Ipsos research, right? So if we're dealing with these people, and we've talked about um, psychology and so forth, we'll, we'll look at what makes these people different. And some of this is, is what you'd expect. You don't get to be this, this powerful and wealthy without having certain attitudes towards, towards wealth. Um, and some of this stuff, you know, it, it just comes with being successful. So you've got a higher internal locus of control, which means these people are more likely to feel they're under control, they're responsible for their own destiny, they set goals, you know, they don't they feel helpless, you know, that they're, they're out there. That's because they're, they're rich. Well, that's, the well, you know, that's the thing, is a chicken or egg? People yeah. like that. And you've heard about their famous marshmallow test, uh, I, I presume with kids, that kids who can resist a marshmallow for two marshmallows a few minutes later on. Right. So the internal resilience to that flows through in later life. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're motivated by money. So, yeah, some of us might be motivated just to do great art or or analyse people the way I do. And if you analyse, if you're really motivated by money, chances are that's going to be what you succeed in. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, some of us are into very different things. Um but particularly interesting is they are more likely to connect their own self-worth with their net worth. They actually see their their worth in monetary terms. Right, right. Even if they lie about it. Um. <laughs> well, you know, you might think, oh, I, I think I'm successful because I'm having a, a comfortable life and a career I like with, with healthy, happy family and kids and great wife and, and, and good balance, and that's great. And these people go, well, I must be important because I'm worth $2 million. Yeah, yeah, look, so at I, must be, I must be just so, so special and yeah. um, just essential to the way the world turns because exactly. look at how much money I've got. Why would yeah. I have that otherwise? Exactly. And we all know that way you make your money, you know, there are people that make money in ways that don't add any value to the world whatsoever. Yeah. And and, uh, and vice versa, there's brilliant people doing great work that aren't getting paid for it. Okay, a lot of getting wealthy may be risk-taking, but until you get the money, and then they stop risk-taking, right? Well, these people, well, they do say they're actually, um, they're less likely to gamble. It's true, you know, that comes with that locus of control. They're they're less likely to overspend, gamble, and stuff like this. So they're very prudent in how they manage their money. But what I thought was interesting when I looked at this analysis was that they're also less likely to give money away. Ah. And there's um, that, that actually comes through in a lot of research and a lot of stuff that's been done in charities that, that generally there's an inverse relationship between your income and your charitable degree of charitability. Right. Is that proportion, <laughs> proportionality uh, take place in that? Because I'm just thinking someone like uh, Bill Gates, he could give away uh, 90% of his money, probably 99 well, and still be a multimillionaire. Well, actually, Bill Gates is a really good example of somebody who actively is. And he has been, um, you know, the, the Belinda and Melinda... Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation puts out a lot of money. And I do know that I think Bill is part of this. He's actively been, he sort of basically um, shoulder taps all the billionaires that he knows and and has this, states exactly what you said. It's just like, you don't actually need this money. None of us need it. Um, Let's find ways of spending it, making the world a better place. And um, there's actually quite a big group of them. I think um, um, that big investor, Warren Buffett, yeah, he's one of them. Yep. There's quite a few of them now that are that are into that because Americans also have a very strong culture of philanthropy. Yeah. Um, but bear in mind that Bill, Bill, and you know Warren, we know just loves loves 
analysis. He's a very analytical person. Bill was just a, a geek with a bit of a ruthless business business approach. Um, the people who are just focused on money for the sake of money, the other ones, and you can see from this this analysis, the more like you think they're important because they can control themselves. If people don't have money, they it's their fault because you know they're self-made men and everything. And it's this lack of empathy for poorer people that often leads them to spend or give away less money. And that's why a lot of poorer people who really emphasise with those who are down their luck are often the most likely to give it away. Mm. All right. These are all statistical yeah. generalisations. Yeah. But within each generalisation of study, there's a grain of truth. Yeah. Uh, oh, it might be my grievance, actually, tomorrow night. Uh, people that's, uh, that are obviously doing extremely well. I often hear this from um, uh, professional footballers or professional sports people um, t- getting an enormous amount of money and yeah. they, they wheel this thing out. Oh, come on, they've got to put food on the table. The food table equation's been well worked out for some time uh, with these yeah. people. Yeah, so yeah. stop saying that. Hey, yeah. we've got to go. Thank you very much, Jonathan Thanks, Dodd. Brad. Appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again next week. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. Every now and again, a field guide comes out about New Zealand natural history and it's kind of a gotta get because they're the up-to-date versions. And I haven't seen one quite so comprehensive. Actually, it's really beautifully put together as well. It has a few facets that... I really, really like in a field guide. It's the reptiles and amphibians of New Zealand, and it's a big fat excuse to talk about how weird and varied our native reptiles and amphibians are, because hardly anyone ever gets to see them. One of the co-authors, along with brilliantly curmudgeonly Rod Hitchmo, Marlene Bailing, and Dylan Van Winkle, who's in the studio with us. G'day, Dylan. Yeah. Hi, Graham. You like your reptiles, obviously. Oh, mate, I love them. Yeah. They're, um, What's the thing about reptiles for you? I guess I've just grown up with them. So I grew up in South Africa and just kept snakes. Dad used to bring home chameleons and just right. got hooked at a young age. And then we came over here, didn't know much about them, didn't even know we had lizards or yeah. reptiles, apart from the tuatara. Just got fascinated. Just the diversity we've got in New Zealand is just yeah. outstanding. So it's just hooked me, yeah. We've got more endemic reptiles than we have birds. Yep, yeah, we do. Um, more than we have terrestrial birds, so it's a, a hot spot in the world for reptiles, really. It's weird that it's not better known, or maybe not, because where the hell are they hiding? Basically everywhere. So any, anywhere from, you know, suburban gardens, uh, industrial estates to the pristine alpine zone, mm. um, coastlines, islands, you'll find them everywhere. Even Some of them even sort of get into the sea and swim around. So yeah. we've got shore skinks and things that'll enter coastal habitats. So basically anywhere, but they're just at low numbers and not many people see them. And they're rather cryptic as well, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're very well camouflaged. Super camouflaged, really cryptic. Some of them only come out in certain times of the day mm. or at night, and it doesn't sort of coincide when people are out and about. So, mm. yeah, pretty secretive little animals. Okay. Like so much of our biodiversity, it's weird. We do reptiles like nobody else does. Yeah. Our geckos. Live young. 
like even our skinks, all live young, except for one. Except for one. Yeah. Should we start there as far as weirdness goes? Yeah, sure. So as you say, there's only two other species in the world of gecko that, that give birth to live young. Where are they? Both from Cal- uh, New Caledonia. I thought as yep, much. Yep, so they're a, a strange... Zealandia's top point. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And our skinks, we have one that lays eggs, the pseudo skink, the egg-laying skink. It's a coastal species. But yeah, all the rest of them, live young, don't breed every year. They're really long-lived, so you know it takes a long time for populations to, hmm. to expand and... And they've been knocked down by all the threats. Okay. Our weirdest, maybe our weirdest animal full stop is the tuatara. Yep. Which is a reptile but not a lizard. Exactly. An ancient thing called the rhynchocephalian. Someone should do a tune. There were there were once many rhynchocephalias, but only one rhynco success. Because <laughs> it's the only one left on the planet. Why? Yeah. Why good, is it here? Good question. So, see, New Zealand's... Gets the reputation of being an ark, an ark for these sort of strange and ancient um, species. So it's a Gondwanan relict. The fact that we don't have any predatory mammals, um, and when New Zealand broke away from Gondwana and drifted away, it's it just survived here and and didn't have you know managed to, to mm. survive anywhere else. Um, yeah, it is peculiar the, because you know, there are um, instances of fossils being found in places like Germany. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, there are a few fossils. There's not many known and not enough to sort of work out the relationships between them all. Mm. But they're all of that um, sort of ancient lineage that was really interesting and really different to everything else living around at that time. Do they have ears? Uh, to Atara? Or yeah. No, they don't. No external ears. So, right. So I was going to say this is uh, a good one for a pub quiz. What has three eyes, two penises and no ears? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A young tuatara. <laughs> young tuatara, yeah. yeah really What's the deal with its third eye? Because it can pick up light and dark, can't it? Yeah, so it's more of a sort of a sensory organ. You can see it. If you look at the top closely, you can see it at quite a different scale there. It's got a sort of transparent membrane that picks up light levels, and they use that, to, we think, for circadian rhythms and, oh. and activity. And But it's, again, really ancient, and it has, has a different skull structure to, yeah. to anything else. Um, just f- flicking through the book, one of the uh, aspects of it that I really enjoy in a field guide, you've got the maps all in one place so you can play flip through and <laughs> yep. see the range. And it's bizarre when it comes to our skinks and geckos, just how range-restricted some of them are. And in some of the least likely reptile places you would ever think to find reptiles. First of all, let's look at the range restriction. I mean, you can point to just an acre or so for some of them. Yep. And for some, there's only one example ever found. Yep, yep, that's right. Super range restricted. And that's probably not natural. And it comes down to the threats and these things before humans were here and, and mammalian pests, they were probably more widespread. And mm. just with these threats, they've sort of pushed them into these tiny pockets. And and what's left is... Um, you know, the, the survivors and things have been stranded on islands where we don't have predators. That's kind of not surprising, isn't it? The, the, the island sanctuaries for a lot of these, although some of the islands are just so small that have got a specific species, like three kings. Yeah, yeah. But it's the ones that are stuck on the mainland, like and around Granity and Westland. Tell us about that animal. On the, on the west coast there, there's... There's two species that are really, really threatened. You've got the cobble skink, which is from Granity. It's sort of a limited in its distribution to a cobbly beach. 
not cobbly beaches, a cobbly yeah, beach. A cobbly beach. Um, and actually, th- that cobbly beach is no, no longer there. So in the last big storm, it completely wiped out that beach. So their habitat is essentially no longer present. It's been wiped out. Are they extinct so, in the wild? They are officially extinct in the wild. Those animals have been captured and they're being housed at Auckland Zoo. And we're currently working on looking at a release site to put those animals back down onto the west coast. Um, and then the, the other species, which is in a similar situation, maybe slightly better, is a bit further south, the Chesterfield skink. Mm. It's found in one stretch of coastal duneland next to a farm paddock, and it doesn't seem to be found anywhere else. Um, yeah, the distribution of skinks along that coastline is, and, and species along that coastline is, is quite strange. And the Okuru skink, we're looking at the ones with peculiar rareness to them or story. It's only known by one specimen. What? Yeah, yeah. So this one's this one's an odd one. It's, and we're not talking a fossil. No, it's a it's a single individual animal that is in the museum. It was collected. It was collected on the west coast by a moss picker. They harvest sphagnum moss to sell. Yeah. And it was found by this moss picker and sent into reported to dock. And there were some photographs taken of the live animal, and it was collected as a voucher specimen, and never been seen since. Um, Has it and, been an all-points bulletin out for them? They're easy to miss. Yeah, they're easy to miss, and that habitat is just, you know, that it's really inhospitable. You don't really walk around in it and spend a lot of time searching there. It's just the people that go in there to Mossbeck. There have been some, some search efforts for it. Um, no one's any, ever turned anything up, but we're looking at doing some sort of promotional community stuff to sort of get the word out, you know, report sightings from that particular mm. area because it's, it's super rare and... It could just be that it's cryptic and we just, there's number there, or that it's on mm. its way to becoming extinct. One and that's where it lives today may give us an indication of what the hell has gone on. Whitaker's skink, it's an amazing looking creature. It's on Mercury Island in the Coromandel, tiny yep. little dot. Yeah. That's its home. And Carpety. It, yeah, so this is a classic example of this disjunct distribution across New Zealand. So the theory is that, and, and we have self-fossil evidence to show that it did occur throughout a lot of the North Island. So they're the only two where it's just hanging on. Yeah, yeah. And actually the Kapiti Coast population uh, is probably extinct in the wild. Uh. So, so those animals, we have some animals in captivity and they, they're being bred up and they're part of a breeding program and we're looking for a release site for those. The animals on the Mercury Islands, they've been shifted around to three or four islands now and established little populations, but essentially that's all we've got left of those, that species. Mm. Um, and how long-lived our geckos are? It's surprising, isn't it? They're a small animal, but 40, 50 years? Yeah, we're at 53 years for a gecko in the wild at the moment. Incredibly long-lived, yeah. Which gecko was that? Ca- the Canterbury gecko, uh-huh. yeah, which is down... Um, it was on Motunau Island. Uh, so there's a long-term study um, by Marika Latink who's, who's been looking at that, and they've they've got um, toe-clipped animals. Uh-huh. And I think it was last year or the year before she got found the same animal, 53 years old, confirmed in the wild. God heavens. Yeah. OK, now to maybe the most astounding example of both how they can hang on be cryptic, avoid us, avoid being seen, and for how old they can live. 
the Duvacell gecko. It's one of our big ones. You could almost, it'll give you a fright at night yeah, if, if you yeah, see one. It, it sure will. It's yeah. a brilliant animal. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, they're doing okay on some islands and are, are being reintroduced to the mainland. But only on the islands did they survive until <laughs> the weirdest thing happened. It was caught in a trap in the Waikato. What's the go there? Yeah. In Mangatau tree, it was uh, an animal, you know, caught in a mouse trap. So there's been a lot of genetic work on that animal to try and figure out, you know, whether it was a captive one that had been released or if it was a true relict. Oh. You know, again, it's a species that would have been occurred on the mainland back in the day. Mm. Um, and what the genetics suggest is that it, it, it shares DNA with the northern populations and both the southern populations, so Cook Strait and the Mercury Island sort of groups. So it's somewhere in between. We still can't work out if it's a captive because it could be, you know, captive people just yeah. often hybridise animals um, and, and it was released or if it is a true relic, it's unknown. And um, again, we've got one specimen, yeah. it's dead in a trap. Uh, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that it was a relic that was left there because they live long yep. and hide. Absolutely. Come out at night. Yep. And Mangatau tree is a perfect big area of primary forests got a fence around it now it's pest free maybe it's, it was going to hang on it could just hang on yeah there. it's the kind of place you'd expect something to hang on to did they find out how old the thing was could they tell no you can't you can't really age them uh, it's really difficult to age and it was a mature animal yeah who knows um so many of our geckos are colorful and amazingly patterned aren't they and it will yeah. come as a surprise to a lot of people because they don't run into them a lot yeah. Stewart Island, maybe one of the most beautiful things. Harlequin yeah. gecko. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, that is, it's got to be the most beautiful gecko in the world. It has to be. It's a, it's a small little animal, about 10 centimetres long. It's got a herringbone pattern with, with reds, basically any colour you can imagine, reds, whites, yellows, greens, mm. um, all sort of patterned, and it's, it's really camouflaged for living in the alpine or subalpine herbland, so... You know the sort of oranges and yellows you see in the herbs. Yeah, absolutely stunning animal. Um, you know, not very much known about it. Really stunning. When we when we were taking photos for the book, we we spent some time down there looking for them. Incredibly difficult to find because you know you would think you would see an animal moving through the shrubland, but we we did eventually find one, taking some photos and releasing it. You can put it down in front of your eyes, and next minute you just can't see it. And then all of a sudden it would reappear when it moved. It was just, the, the camouflage is just incredible, yeah. Okay, and some species are being discovered, you know, really recently. The, the Sinbad skink, no one knew it was there until someone climbed up the side of a cliff. Yep, yep, so that one was picked up in the Sinbad Valley. Uh, that's in Fiordland, yeah, if you down go to Mitre Peak, Sorry, yep. go out, turn left. Yep, that's right. And we're getting these these reportings from climbers, so they spend a lot of time up in these mountains in the backcountry and steep terrain, and putting their fingers in little crevices, they're disturbing lizards. And so two of the species down there, the, the Sinbad skink and the barrier skink, came from reports from, from these climbers. It's so remote and, and hard to get to down there. What we're sort of seeing is that almost every mountaintop can have a, a different species. So, yeah, yeah there's plenty to, to discover. And how much study has been done to the canopy of forests that we don't look at all the time as well? Yeah, uh, almost nothing. <laughs> we know there, there are a few highly arboreal species of lizards, uh, geckos, and there's a, there's a couple of skinks. Um, and I know there's a little bit 
of work being done where they're putting tracking tunnels mm. up in the epiphytes and they are picking up gecko prints but other than that it's really unknown it's hard to tell a species by a print yeah i mean you can sort of get it down to the the genus usually mm-hmm. but yeah it could be could be something new how do our reptiles cope with freezing freezing weather they have yeah. evolved to survive in constant freezing blizzarding bloody <laughs> weather they're a cold-blooded animal up there in the Alpines, let's talk about, I don't know, the, even the rough gecko up in the hills in Kakura. Yeah, yeah. So there's a number of species, like you say, just, you know, snow covers their habitat for, the, you know, most of the year, half the year. How they survive, yeah, it's a good question. They, It sort of depends. Some of the, the Alpine things, like the, uh, the black-eyed gecko, um, and, and they live in these rock bluffs, and probably the Sinbad skink in that, is they use these deep crevices in the rocks that kind of act as thermal insulation. So they'll push, you know, a metre into a rock face, slow their metabolism down. They don't need to eat over that period and they just sort of hunker out and the temperature is slightly above what it is outside because mm. they're insulated by the snow layer. They just sit and wait and, until it warms up. All they've got to do is not freeze to death. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is a job in its own. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about the rough gecko because we've got a picture of one. What amazing skin some of these have, or you call it skin. It's like the surface of a strange planet or Godzilla or something. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be a a feature of New Zealand geckos, some of them. Yeah, especially the rough gecko and a lot of the ones found up in the sort of top of the South Island uh, have these in large scales. And the rough gecko rudus, they're particularly large and, and the function of these is just to break up its body shape, really. There's no defensive or sort of function like that. It's more when they're amongst the foliage, it's hard to, to pick out their outline when they've got these huge, large nobules all over them. Right. Yeah. There's an elephant-sized elephant in the room about one gecko. It's just nuts. I don't know what to make of it. It seems too bizarre to be true. We're talking Delcourt's gecko, of which there is one example extant in the world. It's not a fossil, it's a skin. Uh, so it was alive not that long ago, not thousands of years ago, right. and it's about a foot and a bit long. That's nuts. And apparently it was found in New Zealand. What do you make of this thing? Yeah, so Delcourt's gecko, this is... Everyone, when you, who's got an interest in lizards, when you mention, you know, New Zealand geckos, they mention this Delcourt's gecko because it's, yeah, by far the largest gecko. It's big as a cat. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. So, yeah, it's known from this skin that's been stuffed really badly in a museum in France and uh, as far as we can sort of trace back with the movements of where it may have been collected uh, there were expeditions through New Zealand around that sort of time and if you look at the Māori folklore there's sort of stories of big giant lizards as thick as a man's wrist being caught from under bark even to the degree that it matches the same striping colour pattern as what's seen on the Delcourt's gecko so sort of linking the two, it's always been thought that this must have come from New Zealand. But we don't have any other specimens. We have no subfossil bones. And recent molecular techniques, so looking at DNA, is suggesting that it's, it probably has come from New Caledonia, but we're not 100% sure. It's a so, weird mystery, even if yeah. it is just New Caledonia, yeah, I mean, to see a thing like that. Yeah, and until it's proven, we'll, I'm sure New Zealand will claim it. It's one of the greatest mysteries in New yeah. Zealand biodiversity, isn't it? Yeah. Natural history. Absolutely. I reckon. Yeah. Weirder than a mower. Yeah, much weirder. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and there's absolutely no doubt it was alive, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. Or more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
far out. The book Reptiles and Amphibians of New Zealand, we have an astounding array. They're colourful and beautiful and unfortunately there are people with a thing called reptile obsessive psychosis around the world and they are a problem, aren't they? Yep. Yeah. They come to New Zealand and shove them down their pants and travel back to the Czech Republic or somewhere to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yep, you, you name collect- it. Yeah. The pet trade, especially the European and US and even into the Japan and that, are just absolutely nuts about collecting the most strange and weird and wonderful animals. And we've got the mother load. And we've got them all, yeah. So every year, it's unfortunate, but animals do leave the country illegally. It's really, really hard to police it. Yeah, These I mean, people have got to know where to get them. Yeah, that's right. So You published a goddamn book. <laughs> I'm not going to bring this up, are you? <laughs> no, no, we've, tr- we've no, tried... No, we have to have a field guide for our reptiles, don't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's a balance of, uh, you know, putting enough information that you can inform the public and get people enthused and out looking for them, um, but not providing specific locations where yeah. you can actually find these. I mean, some of those animals there you could spend days and days, and like I did when I was trying to find them to photograph them, looking for these animals, knowing exactly where they are. And you've got your eye in. Yeah, and they're incredibly difficult to find, a lot of them. You know, you just hope that in that time, if there's someone sniffing around that didn't look like what they were, you know, they shouldn't be there, that the public would sort of report them and... Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's... Look, that lunchbox with 40 geckos in it that was found, was it last year in Canterbury or yeah, something? Yeah, that's right. It Dead. L- sounds like it was a someone had collected and freaked out and dumped it. Most of those animals had died. Just just a waste. And some of them are extremely rare and, as we mentioned, really, really range-restricted. Um, yeah. There's a skink that a lot of people will be running into in the North Island and maybe going, yay, we've got skinks. Our biodiversity's doing okay here. Uh, unfortunately, the high likelihood that it's th- a thing appropriately called the goddamn plague skink. Yep, right? plague skink. <laughs> How do we tell the difference? What do we do about it? And what damage is it doing? The plague skink is this little Australian species that was introduced in the 60s. Um, it's probably the most common um, species in, of lizard in the, in the North Island. They look very, very similar to uh, our native copper skink and some or the ornate skink, so a little brown job. Basically, how you tell the difference is they have a, a scale on the top of the head, and uh, if you're interested, you can you have to get the book because it's got a nice illustration to show you how to identify them. But there's a scale on the head that's different to the natives. They're much more lean, longer tails, very active. And essentially, if you if you're in the North Island and you're seeing a lizard um, out in your rock garden or in your driveway basking in the sun, and when you approach it, it scurries away, and you see multiple of them, it's going to be a plague skink. That's right. just their behaviour. It's a behaviour. It's easier it's a, than spotting a yeah. scale on its head to yeah. try and yeah. keep one still <laughs> exactly. or close enough for that amount of time. Yeah. Uh, what can we do about them? What can we do about them? Not much. The risk with providing sort of advice on, on getting rid of them or, or killing them when you see them, so they're an unwanted organism um, officially, but... Providing advice saying, you know, if you see these brown lizards go out and, and stomp on them or get rid of them, you know, let your cat play with them, uh, it's a bit risky because they do look so similar to the natives. Yeah. And our natives... Are, Here's a diff. It yeah. lays eggs like the rest of the world. Yep. Ours don't. Can except. we... Except for one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so can we do something eggy? Yep. So ex- exactly. If you if you digging in the compost heap or you're moving something around your house and you see a clutch of small white eggs that are about five millimeters in diameter, they feel kind of leathery. Those will be plague skink eggs. 
stomp on those or get rid of them, put mm. them in the freezer. That's a good way of can, getting them down. But they're just to such abundance that, you know, it's going to take everyone and every effort to, to knock them back down. And can get, they live alongside our native wildlife? Yeah, they can do, and we do find them... Uh, in high numbers. But are they, are they driving ours out? Are they really a danger yeah. or is it just a, a maybe? We don't know. It's, I mean, it's hard to believe that they're not, given the high numbers they get to and the, you know, the food resources, the refuges they're using. They're taking right. that away from our natives. But we found no direct evidence that they are influencing or threatening our natives to mm. date. Oh, well, yeah. let's keep our fingers crossed about that, I suppose. Yeah. All right. A fabulous book. It covers amphibians as well, but we haven't got time to cover all that. We've only got a few of them, and they're weird as well. We'll leave the frogs for another day. Sure. As far as natural history goes, because they're a tremendous story all on their own. Dylan Van Winkle, uh, congratulations. The Reptiles and Amphibians of New Zealand, a field guide. If you're in the bookstore, just have a flick through it and you will be astounded at the reptilian wildlife that we have in this country because we think it's birds, 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 but reptiles beat them, don't yeah. they? Yep, absolutely. More species. <laughs> more species, much more beautiful. Good one, Dylan. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Graham. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. Aston Fund, a marvellous thing. They divvy out quite a bit of cash for research, usually blue sky research, basic research. And one of the recipients this year it's, uh, is Michelle Glass. And this is, uh, she's looking into something to do with Kauri dieback and it does have a distinct application. First of all, a round of applause and congratulations. Michelle Glass from the University of Otago. Thank you very much. Okay, this is a little bit more than play money, isn't it? It's nearly a million over three years. It is, it is. So, you know, that's funding salaries and overheads and consumables across um, three groups working on this project. Yeah. Oh, we're not th thinking that you're just going to um, give the, your conclusion as a disparin and then fly to Tahiti. <laughs> okay, Kari Dieback, it really is a worrying thing, creating a lot of anxiety. Um, you are looking at tackling it at the real business end, how the damn thing works chemically. We are, we are. These are really unusual organisms, and, and so they don't respond particularly well to sort of agrochemicals that are already around. Um, so we're really trying to, to come up with something quite new to, to attack them. And what is that? Well, what we know about these, um, well, it's called Phytophthora, um, and it's sort of like an algae. And it moves through the soil, but it moves through the soil quite directly to the cowrie tree. Um, and it's following a chemical signal to do that. And the part of the phytophthora that, that picks up that chemical signal is something called a G-protein-coupled receptor. And we know a lot about G-protein-coupled receptors. About 30% of the drugs that target human diseases work on G-protein-coupled receptors. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I come into it, is, is I've been working on G-protein-coupled receptors all my life. Um, and so we thought, well, that should be druggable essentially. So can we use the kind of approaches that have been used to develop drugs to target diseases in humans mm. to target the phytophthora and maybe be able to stop it moving towards the cowrie tree or, or, you know, make it move towards a, a bait station or something like that instead? That sounds nutty, actually. <laughs> Making a fungus <laughs> move to a bait station. 
Um, how... well, it's, it's no nuttier than it moving directly towards the calorie route. Right. You know, that it knows that that's its target. So if we can make it think that its target is somewhere else, it won't work. So it's not just a random thing. You reckon it can sniff its way to find a kauri? Yeah, we, we think it can sniff its way to the carriage. Oh, heavens to Betsy. Okay, so these protein receptors um, and, and employing something the way that human drugs work, how would you deliver this? Well, that's a long, long way off. You know, right now we have to figure out if this approach would even work. Right. Um, can we develop something that could actually target that, you know, these receptors and and make a difference? And I think how it would then work in practice will depend on what we're trying to do. Have we got something that blocks them moving towards the carry or have we got them that got something that they migrate towards as an alternative? Mm. You know, we're 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 a good few years off that. Oh, hurry up. Um, but I would say, you know, <laughs> hey, it's taken us about three years to actually get this funded, so we're excited just to be starting now. Yeah, all right. Uh, can you give us an idea of a human medicine that does work in this way? Because we probably don't know that it works in this way, just to give, give oh. us a familiarity. So morphine. Morphine acts at, at a, a receptor called the new opiate receptor, and that's a G-protein-coupled receptor. Ah, right. Most of the pain medication. Right. It's got that beautifully um, similar shape that it just latches on to our nerve endings and makes them feel, ah. Yes, exactly. So it's, it's, you know, all of these drugs are just mimicking something that happens naturally anyway. But, mm. you know, you have an endogenous opiate, and the morphine looks a bit like one of those and binds to the same target in the cell. And so we're sort of hoping we can exploit the same thing here. We can figure out what it is that these receptors are seeing and we can make something that looks a bit like that. All right, Michelle, Professor, Professor Michelle Glass from the University of Otago. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, good luck with your research. Thank you. Thank you. I think we'll need it with this one. New sport and weather coming your way pretty shortly. Uh, just a heads up after 11 o'clock. We're not doing an album from the class of 1978 as usual, but Grant Smithies does join me. We have a look at the great war music from country, folk, pop, even hip-hop. Yeah. Uh, all get represented in the next hour. War music with Grant Smithies. It's 11 o'clock. Good evening. Oh, don't forget, tomorrow, big commem commemorations on this program uh, for Armistice Day. Just happened to fall on the Sunday. So tune in. Glenn Harper's final installation of Jesus Make It Stop. <laughs>